Well, we're in a series called Doomsday Preppers. Say that with me, Doomsday Preppers. Oh, you can do better than that. Doomsday Preppers. That's right. And so, um, so uh, the premise of this message is that, um, that uh, the end of the world is going to happen at some point. In fact, there is an entire part of our culture that is living every day prepping for the zombie apocalypse and the end of the world. And uh, I thought that uh, let, let's review that there are people out there like that. I am Quick preparing video. preparing for a worldwide pandemic. Go, 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 go. That's great. It starts with Before I was prepared for pandemic, I was probably spending 20 hours a day worrying about it. Those people that think they're entitled to other people's stuff don't get the stuff given to them by the government, they're going to come and try and take our stuff. If doomsday happens, there's a lot of things I'm not going to miss. Um, the Kardashians. When the pandemic comes, those who are prepared will survive. Those who do not prepare will die. If someone comes out here and attempts to assault my property, we're going to lock and load and fight. Hey, I hope that doesn't happen as much as the next guy. But if it does, and you're not prepared, sorry. And so I'm taking these steps beforehand to see to it that that doesn't happen to us. Okay, so last week when I opened with this video and I said, can you believe there are people out there doing that? You guys all got quiet. Which made me think, you are those people. I was wondering if I'm pastoring. I know you live in Texas and you all have guns, but I just didn't really know if you're actually stockpiling. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, you've dug holes in the back of your yard and now have a safe, secret place that no one can get into without a code. And so anyway, but, but so they're prepping in that kind of fashion. We're actually going to teach you how to prep according to the Word of God because there is an end on its way. Everybody say amen. And as we, as we review for just a moment, you know, we, we talked about last week that Jesus Christ uh, said it like this, no man knows the hour of the date. At which the end will happen. And so all these guys that are posting stuff, you know, on social media, it's going to be this date. They are liars. They are liars. You know, I don't say things that boldly. They are liars, though, because Jesus Christ himself said, I don't even know. Nor do the angels in heaven, only God the Father. In fact, I, I, I kind of had a little pun last week. Uh, even if you did figure out the date that God was coming back, or Jesus was coming back, um, God would probably change that date just so that his word would be accurate, that no man knows the time or the hour. And so as we jump into this today, I thought it would be great to kind of start with a story, you know, since we're talking about the end of the world and uh, the, the doomsday preppers. A Bible study group was discussing the possibility of the end of the world. And, uh, and so the leader of the Bible study said, so guys, it, you know, if the end of the world, you knew it was going to happen in four weeks from now, what would you do differently? What would you go about doing? And everybody was like, hmm, that's true. I don't know. And a gentleman raised his hand and he said, well, I'll tell you what I would do. I would go into my community and minister the gospel to those who have not yet accepted the Lord into their lives. And everybody's like, oh, that's good. That's true. That's really good. Then another lady spoke up and she said enthusiastically, I would dedicate all of my remaining time to serving God, my family, my church, my fellow man with a greater conviction. That's wonderful, said the group leader. And everybody agreed. And there was a little silence for a moment. And then another general way back in the back of the Bible study raised his hand and spoke up. He said, you know what I would do? I would go to my mother-in-law's house for those entire four weeks. Everyone paused for a second 
And finally, the leader said, well, kind of puzzled, well, why would you go to your, your mother-in-law's house? He said, because that'll make that the longest four weeks of my life. Come on, somebody. That's good stuff right there. <laughs> as we jump into today's, uh, today's teaching, uh, I want to kind of, you know, as I told you last week, uh, what I love about end-time prophecy and what I love about end-time teaching is that everybody is an expert and none of them agree. It's amazing to watch on Christian television and read their books. It's phenomenal. There are some things that we all agree on. And the reason that is is because prophecy can be subjective. And what that means is God didn't say, bump, 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 bump. There's this prophecy that comes forth. And then as we read that, whether it be in the book of Daniel, whether it be the book of Revelation, and you've got to understand these men were seeing visions thousands of years ahead of their time. So even try to, can you imagine 2,000 years ago them trying to explain a helicopter? Can you imagine them trying to explain what they were seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of years ahead? And so what you have is a lot of subjective communication amongst people who think they have it all figured out. And I would say that as a pastor, my only premise in even teaching on the end times is because I want to accomplish what Jesus was trying to accomplish. And that is that you and I would be ready for his return. That you and I would live ready. Remember, that's what we talked about last week. Not so that we could argue about dates and times times and get into all kinds of numerology, I'll leave that for all those people who love to do that kind of stuff. As your pastor, the only reason I'm covering it, because I want to be sure that when I stand there on that day, and you're all standing there with me, that Jesus looks us all in the eye and says, well done, good and faithful servants, that not one of us are a loss, not one of us did not heed his warnings or his concerns, that each and every one of us are ready. Isn't that good? Say yes. Come on, don't you let me say, go past that, go past. Okay, good. So today, as we jump in, let's do a little timeline. I'll give you kind of a, a, just a real basic timeline of kind of what the book of Revelation is pointing out, the book of Daniel, and some of these things that we know are going to happen. Now, this is where there's a lot of argument as to what happens when and at what time. So let's give a little quick timeline. And this is the timeline of the end times. Over here to your left, is you'll see this little... A beginning of our timeline called the present church age. That's the age in which we live right now. The church was birthed there in the book of Acts. We see it coming alive and becoming the church and we're still in that dispensation. We're still in the church age. There will be a great tribulation. Now I have as the next piece the rapture of the church. There's a lot of argument and disagreement over this piece right here the rapture of the church. Whether it's before the tribulation starts in the middle of the tribulation at the end of the tribulation and things like that. So let's skip that and come back to it. So these seven years are, are very clearly laid out in the book of Revelation. Pastor John, and, and we'll speak about it a little bit next week some more, but we have these seven years that's called the tribulation. And there's th- they're broken into three and a half years and then three and a half years. And the beginning of sorrows is the first three and a half years. And what transpires during that whole process is there's difficulty and seals are being opened and bowls are being opened. And again, Pastor John will speak to that next week for us and help us a little bit better. And then this midway mark is kind of marked by the two witnesses. Witnesses, the, um, some, some think that there may be Elijah or Enoch or some others, but there'll be these two prophetic voices, these two witnesses, as the Bible calls them. And for that three and a half years, they will preach the Bible, the Word of God, they will preach it down. So much so that it'll be going to the whole world and literally get the whole world's attention and they will move in such power that they'll literally, anyone who comes against them, they'll be able to say famine on your country. And literally, it'll happen. And no one is able to kill them. But after the three and a half years, the Antichrist is given the power, God takes his hand, they're able to be killed and then everything shifts and then a greater or the great tribulation then starts as the Antichrist begins to reign 
reign and rule and God's wrath is being poured out and so forth and so on. And so it's in this piece right here that I want to help you clarify what we, the leadership of Church on the Hill, believe. Whether we be pre-trib, whether we be post-trib, whether we be mid-trib, whichever one. Let me just tell you what we believe. We are pre-wrath. What we mean by that in the leadership is the First Thessalonians tells us clearly God will not pour out His wrath on His sons and daughters. It's already been poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that we, that we should be punished for, everything that we should be disciplined for, all that was poured out on Jesus. When we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are now covered as and when God looks at us, they, He sees the blood of Jesus. It's like a screen, a veil. He sees us as we stay in submission to Jesus Christ, obeying His teachings, walking by way of being filled with the spirit walking after him in the spirit not living according to the sinful nature we are then covered and when god the father looks down at us he doesn't have wrath on us because we are his sons and daughters and so that's why many of us believe that before ever the tribulation happens they'll be taken away now the argument is is that really is that god's wrath is that just the world's wrath on the christian and we do understand in jesus's teaching that even as christians we will suffer persecution and difficulty and so the question is not whether or not there'll be a tribulation and whether or not they'll be taken away. The real argument is, when will it be? At what stage in this whole process of these seven years? Before it? In the middle of it? After it? And this is where the real confusion... I don't really care, to be honest with you. But the big thing that you and I need to hold to and understand is that He will not pour out His wrath on His sons and daughters. It's already been poured out. Somebody ought to say amen to that right there. That's a great truth. And you can hold to that and know that God's got me in the palm of His hand. He loves me even though I sin. Yet will I repent and come righteously before before the Lord and say have mercy on me and my sin then be washed as white as snow and he takes and throws it as far as the east is to the west now here's the reason why most post-tribbers are concerned about pre-tribbers or mid-tribbers it's because they say because when difficulty happens on the earth if you haven't prepped the people to be able to go through hardship and overcome persecution because you had a little bit off in your whole doctrine of how you saw the tribulation and the difficulties that were happening friend can I tell you something we are raising up men and women who can stand against every trial and tribulation and I promise you right now that you are not going to come to this church and be weak kneed sissified can't pray your way out of a wet paper bag we're raising up great men and women of God. So that's not a concern for church on the hill, but I will say this, there'll be a great taking away, and I'm going to be in it, and you will too, amen? And so then at the end of that tribulation, there's the return of Christ. That's the great battle that happens in Armageddon, and you've heard all the, 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 you know, the nations of the world rise up together in one army and trying to destroy God as Jesus comes in, and the Bible talks about him riding back on a white horse, you remember those songs, you know, Jesus riding on it, wait, sorry, that was wrong generation. And so, and so he comes back, and they try to do, and they do war, if you will, and we're falling behind him as I see it, you know, our horses trying to catch up, you know, but he makes it here first, and in a moment, it's all over, and, 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 and the Bible actually talks about the blood of all those dead people who fought against Jesus is all the way up to the bridle of the, of the horse, can you imagine that? That's a lot of, that's a Tarantino movie right there, if there ever be one. That's creepy and nasty. But nonetheless, it'll happen. And then what'll happen is Jesus will then lock up the, the, the great dragon, and for a thousand years, he will set up his kingdom, here, his, his, literally his political, the way he does life, he will set it up on this earth, and those of us that are with him will reign with him. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm asking to be governor of Hawaii in that moment for that thousand years. You can pick whatever spot you want. It's up to you. And then, uh, and then, so then, when that thousand years comes to an end, uh, the dra- great dragon will be released. Think about it, because over a thousand years, there'll be uh, kids that were born and grown up and so forth, and they've never been tempted 
by the great dragon. They've never had what you and I experience in our life now because they've been under the reign of Jesus. He will be released one more time and he will literally pull away. Literally people will fall away and then there'll be an end of all that and then the judgment to come and you'll see the final judgment and then you and I will live with him for eternity having the time of our lives. Come on somebody, isn't that good? So that's just a quick overview rundown. And so today, what we wanted to do, and, 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 and our team will d- dive into that a little bit more next week. But today, what we want to do is cover Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And this is the love letters of Jesus to the church. And he literally breaks it down to seven pieces or seven letters to seven different churches. These churches actually existed in biblical times when John the Revelator was having these open visions from the Lord. He actually was seeing the seven churches that existed at that time They uh, and, and we'll go through their names and what we find is as these love letters are being brought forth it's because Jesus is warning not only these seven churches that existed then but they are literally an a- allegory for all of us as well. In other words, I'm speaking to them but for the church that always will for the church over the next few thousand years this is an example that's why it's put as holy scripture because it represents to us as well and so though our church be called church on the hill and not smyrna it still represents and speaks to us as well and and so we need to find ourselves falling in the right spot as jesus is bringing a great love letter and a great warning all throughout these letters jesus is communicating and and, and the way he's communicating is by way of a couple of thoughts i want you once you get the first he starts by praising the church i'm so proud of what you've done. I'm so proud of this. But then he rebukes them and says, yeah, but you got to change this. This is not right. And then he moves into encouragement. But if you do, let me tell you something. You can do this. And and here's how you go about doing it. And then he ends with a promise. And if you do this and you trust me in this, I will give you the right hand. You will sit next to me. And he gives them a promise. How would that, would that have been awesome to work a job with a boss like that? Think about that. A boss who actually says, come, come sit down. You've done something wrong. You're not producing properly. You come and sit you down and say, man, I'm so proud. Let me tell you what, you're doing this so good. Wow, you're on time. Oh, you're doing so good with that. And man, you're doing so good with this. Now listen, over here, your sales are a little bad, and I think it's because you haven't ever picked up the phone. That could be the problem. I think that's maybe the problem. But let me tell you something. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make 16 phone calls an hour. Okay, I got a list for you. You do that, and then I promise you, I'm going to double your salary by the end of the month. Can you imagine getting to work for somebody like that? You and I work for people. We don't even know why they're mad. I have no idea why I just got fired. You mean to tell me? I, was, I thought I was doing good. I was doing great. Next thing you know, I'm not working. Come on, you ever had that per- person you work with? they mad and you don't even know what they're mad about. They're all upset. Jesus is not that person. He's saying, listen, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I praise you for doing this. Now, let's point out what you got to fix. And you need to work on that. And let me tell you how to work on it. I'm going to give you this way to go about doing it. I'm going to give you the solution to the problem. I'm going to tell you what, what you're great at and tell you what you're not so good at. And I'm going to give you the solution to your problem. And then guess what? If you will respond to me and you'll do this, I have a reward waiting for you. Come on, isn't that good stuff? That's our Jesus. And so when you read the book of Revelation, especially again for you guys that, you know, used to, you know, uh, coming off of, you know, uh, former meth addicts, when you read that, you know, it kind of gives you kind of flashbacks to them, them trips that you used to have. And so you just want to close the book. And I get that, and I, I, I probably don't want you reading it just yet. But I want to break it down to explain it to you that these first two chapters, they really are love letters from your Savior to you. 
And he's trying to help you and me so that at the end of it all, we stand with him beside him all in paradise and enjoy the rest of our existence. Isn't that good? Say yes. So let's jump in real quickly to the first one. The first church that Jesus points out is the church at Ephesus. And so we're really covering Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And he starts in verse 2 and 3 of Revelation 2. And he says, here's the, problem, here, here's the praise that I have for you. Your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate wicked men. Oh, I'm so proud of you. You have tested those who have claimed to be apostles but are not and have, and have found them to be false. You have preserved and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Oh, I'm so proud of you. You have not grown weary. You've worked so hard. You've had such good deeds. And then verse 4, he says, but this is what I have against you. You've forsaken your first love. Hey, let me tell you something. You've been so good. You go to church. You give your tithes and offerings. You've got a small group going. And man, you're just working yourself to the bone. You're trying to read the Bible. Those are all good things. But you've lost your first love. You don't even know why you're doing it anymore. Friend, can I tell you something? It's more important what God is doing in you than what he's doing through you. When you look up and you say, how could that pastor have ever been like that? How could that leader have ever been like that? How, why did they allow that to happen? Because somewhere along the way, they kept doing for God and doing for God and doing for God, and they stopped establishing a love relationship with their God. They looked up. You say, well, how can that be? Well, you see it in marriages all the time. Oh, all the time. Oh, man, all of a sudden they're empty nesters and they don't even like each other and they divorce. You say, how could that happen after 25 years of marriage? Well, because when they first got married, they were so in love and he would write romantic love letters to her and they would go on date nights and they practice dancing. Oh, wait, sorry, wrong culture. And so they, they would get all this together. Oh, man, so, then they had kids and it was such a joy to have kids at first. And then, and come on, somebody. That was all the parents laughing, young people, and just point that out. And then all of a sudden it became taxing, and now we're working both of you. Got to go back to work after giving birth to this kid. Somebody else is watching this kid while you're while you're working, and you're trying to keep the house going, trying to get all. And you and you finally get a system and a routine, and we're doing this and this and this and this. And you look up one day, and you were so good at keeping it all together and keeping it all organized that you lost the love for one another. And this is what Jesus is warning us about. He's saying, "Listen to the church at Ephesus. You're so good, man. You are so faithful." You're so, man, you, you, man, you have fought against false teaching, apostles, they're fake, they weren't really ones. Yet I have this problem with you. I don't know you. We're not in relationship anymore. You've lost your love for me. And look what he does. He doesn't just present the problem. Hope you fix it. That's what I love about my Jesus. And he goes, and he gives the solution. Look what he says. Here's the redemptive action, verse 5. Repent and do things like you did at first. Repent. And do things like you did it. Listen, I've taught you this before if you're in our church, if you're new to us. Repentance is not a bad word. It's a magnificent word. It's powerful. You say, oh, no, I've been in them churches. They repent, repent. I don't know why they do that with their voice. But the word repent is magnificent. Remember, I taught you. It's like, it's like when your computer has frozen up and you're like, oh, I'm going to lose all my work. And then you realize, control, alt, delete. Mm. The spinning wheel of death. Blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden it reboots and you're like, oh. It's working again. That's what repentance is. Can you imagine in the Olympics after they ran their race and they lost that the guy comes and says, hey, everybody, guess what? You guys that lost, guess what? It's okay. We're going to let you do it again. You get to try again. What? I just gave midterm exams to my students uh, at the university. Can you imagine? I didn't give them a second chance. You failed. Sorry, you should have studied. Oh, well. Why didn't you do what I told you to do? But yet Jesus allows us to repent, to do over. 
That's amazing. Where, can you, I'd love to sign up for that. I don't understand why people get all scared. And so he tells them, repent and go back, what, do what you did when you first fell in love with me. Guys, do you remember when you were first Christian, some of you? You remember how excited you couldn't wait to get to church? You couldn't wait to be with the body of believers? You couldn't wait to, to read the Bible? I mean, when we first got saved, my mom and I, we got, we got the biggest Bible we could buy. And, uh, and, and in those days, you only had two translations. You had King James and Living. King James was so old, and so you had no idea what it was talking about. Living was magnificent. You knew what it was talking about, but it wasn't accurately doctrinally. So you, between the two, you could figure out something, you know. And so we had it paralleled. You'd read them right there, and as the preachers, we'd read it. We'd come home and read. We're so excited. And then we got radically on fire for the Lord and got baptized in the Holy Spirit. We, and we went and got some tambourines, like all the other people at our church. And boy, we started shaking the tambourines, man, and singing and dancing. And then after a few years, we started creeping from the back front of the church to the back of the church. It became a chore to read the Bible. We had to go through more trainings on how to read the Bible in three minutes a day so that we could have power in our life. We lost our first love and had, had to go back and re- repent and go back and do what we did in the beginning. We just love Jesus. He's warning the church in Ephesus of this as he's warning us as well today. Here's the second church that he deals with. Oh, let, let me give you the promise. And he says, and if you do this, if you repent and go back and do what you did at first, I will give you the right, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You will get to have, you'll be in paradise. Can, can you imagine paradise? You get to be in paradise. You'll eat of the tree of life in paradise. Friend, I got a plan for you. I got a promise for you. If you will come back to a loving relationship with me, you're good. You're so, you're so faithful. You're so hardworking. But if you'll come back to your first love with me, I'll tell you right now, I have a plan for you. I have a promise for you. Let's go to the second church. The second church is found in verses 8 through 11. That's the church of Smyrna. Everybody say Smyrna. You guys say it like that, Smyrna. And then he starts with the praise in verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know your affliction. Hey, listen, guys, I know that your church is in the hood and ain't nobody got no money and y'all are struggling. I know your poverty. I know the affliction. You ain't got a nice bill and your air condition never works. Nobody wants to ever come. And all you get is the people with all the, all the issues and da-da-da-da-da. I know your situation. And look what he does. He has no strong rebuke for them. He has no strong rebuke for the church at Smyrna. But he does say this to him, but don't be afraid. It's a warning, not a rebuke for this church. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You think you've been suffering? I'm so sorry, because more is coming. He literally is warning them. that there's. And can I just say this? There's a moment in all of our lives where difficulty is going to happen. And he's warning them about that. Will you quit on me when the difficulty happens? Will you quit on me when what you thought wasn't fair happens in your life. When you say, God, why did you allow that to happen? I was serving you. and this, That's what he's warning them of. Friend, listen, can I take 2,000 years ago, this church was going through the same thing you and I are going through. This thing continues on to be a teaching and a training. Look at the redemptive action, though, when you go through this difficult. Be faithful even to the point of death. And then he gives them, he gives them a promise. I will give you the crown of life. Listen, friend, all of us are going to go through difficulty. It's all of us are going to experience. It's just life. He's telling the church this morning, he says, listen, I know you've already been through so, such hardship. I know you, that you're poor and you don't have a lot. And I know it's everything you can do to just keep serving and keep loving. And friend, can I tell you something? More's coming. More's coming. And if I could encourage you, to the point of death, keep loving, keep trusting. To the point of death. He says, because when that happens, I'm going to give you a crown of life. 
I'm going to give you a crown that outshines everyone else's crown. Friend, can I tell you something? God has a plan for each and every one of us. When he's warning us about the end times, it's not because he wants to whoop us, because he's mad at us, because he lo- these are love letters. I love you so much. Let me tell you, let me tell you what could happen. It's, gonna, it's happening. It's going to come at some point. It may be in your lifetime. And so you need to live ready. And let me give you a couple of things that you need to correct on. So the church at Ephesus, church of Smyrna, and here's the third church that he points out here in verses 12 through 17, and that's the church of uh, Pergamum. Pergamum. The church at Pergamum in verse 13, he starts praising them with this saying, I know, you were, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas sorry, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You know where these guys live? They live in Las Vegas. I mean, they live in a city where Satan is reigning and ruling. They live in a, in a wicked, wicked city. And he says to him, he says, I'm so proud of you. He says, because you live where Satan has his throne. I mean, they not, listen, guys, you got to say what you, listen, in all the cities that you visited, you got to understand Dallas is a pretty safe, it's a pretty Christian environment. You got to own that. Out of all the cities that I've been to, I get back to Dallas, go down Bourbon Street in New Orleans sometime and see it. I feel the demons, like they're coming down off the clouds, like, oh my God, oh my God, you full of demons, you full of demons, that rock's full of a demon. I mean, you just, I mean, you just demons everywhere. I mean, all my Louisiana friends say amen. Y'all know that's true. Tell these people. And so, but, but he's saying, I know you live in that environment where Satan has his throne. It's the hub, man. It's the center point of demonic activity. You live up in, up in Ur, right up in Ur. He says this, he goes, but, and I'm so proud of you that you have not renounced your faith. Even when they killed my faithful servant, Antipas, you stayed faithful. I'm so proud of you. And he verse, uh, verse 14, though, now he brings a correction. He goes, but this is the thing I need to warn you about. You, uh, you have people uh, there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by becoming sexual immoral and, and by committing, excuse me, sexual immorality. And Balaam really, he, if you go back in the Bible times when this was transpiring, uh, Balaam really, his whole movement with the Israelites was what you and I would call loose standards. It was a sloppy, agape, gracie, gracie teaching that, oh, you can just do whatever you want. And we see that really prevalent uh, in the Western world right now. This real sloppy, sloppy, you know, if God loves you, he has grace on you. You don't have to have a standard. I don't understand why the church is being so religious. That's, and that's the, that's the sin of Balaam. And that's what was happening here. He says, you've allowed the sin of Balaam to be in your midst. And it's even leading to the sexual immorality. Likewise, you also uh, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I haven't said that right yet. Nicolaitans. Thank you. The Nicolaitans. And, and, and the Nicolaitans, one of the things that was critical about them were they were so religious. They were so... So strong and what is what what you have to this is and they had all these regulations and all these rules and some of you came out of out of environments like that it was so much more about rules and regulation and there was no relationship and so what we see is happening as he's correcting the church right here uh, in Pergamum Pergama, it's the same thing I think is happening in the states now where we've got the either you're one you're either super religious you're super super like right and wrong and all these kind of things and it's all these rules and regulations are your sloppy agape grace over here was just let's live and we're all just having sex with each other and we're Christians and God is good and we're all getting drunk and God is awesome we're having beer parties for Jesus and you got these two dynamics and this is what was happening in this situation and Jesus is rebuking them for it and look what he says as his redemptive action repent that easy he leaves it at that repent verse 16 
repent. That's wrong. You know both sides of that coin is wrong. Just repent. And then he gives a promise. And I will give some of the hidden manna uh, to you. I will, I will also give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Hey, let me tell you something. If you'll just repent and come out of all that foolishness, being back and forth between those two camps, and if you'll just get right up in the middle and serve me and have a relationship with me. Listen, I know you've been, fa- I know you've been in the midst of some of the most difficult place to live. Satan himself reigns and rules your whole city. And thank God you haven't quit on me, but at the same time, you're allowing all this messy teaching to happen over here. And then you got this other messy teaching over here and it's causing such turmoil and such just repent of it and guess what i'm gonna do i'm gonna get listen i'm gonna write your name on a stone and it's gonna be on you to, it's my little secret love letter to you and me nobody's gonna know what it says but you and i gonna know what it says i'm gonna give you a stone a white stone with your name on it and not only that but i'm gonna give you hidden manna you know what manna was in the in, in the old testament moment uh there when the children of israel were out in the wilderness it was they did not have to provide for themselves food fell from heaven <laughs> Hey, wake up, everyone. Oh, there you go. That's so good. Come on. Somebody in this room cooks way too much. So you ought to be saying amen right now. He's going to give you free food that you don't have to work for. Come on, somebody. Manna from heaven. You're going to be sustained by his power. And then the next church, uh, the church of uh, uh, Thyatira, which I thought was cute. Thyatira. This is verses 18 through 29 in the book of Revelation chapter 2. Look what he says. He praises them. He says, I know your love and faith your service, and your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. And verse 20, though, he starts rebuking him. But you've tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So I will cast her, he starts talking about Jezebel, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. I will strike her children dead Uh, Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So what he's warning us about is, listen, you've allowed sexual immorality. In the the Old Testament, uh, Jezebel was one of the queens of Egypt, excuse me, Egypt, of Israel, and and she was one of the queens of Israel, and she was very wicked and very perverted. But, but the perversion was less the factor as much as it was drawing the people of God away from their love for God. And, of course, the sexuality and the sensuality was part of her process of, of using that and doing that with the temple worship that she was into at Balaam and all that kind of stuff. And so what we have, uh, Baal, what we have is a, a, a similar situation happening in this church in, in Thyatira. And so what he's saying is that, listen, let me tell you something. You've allowed sexual immorality up in the church like that. He says, I'm going to deal with that thing. He said, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to deal with it. Not only am I going to put, uh, put the person who's generating all of it in suffering, I'm going to kill their kids. That's what he's saying. You understand that? This is, this is a church that actually exists. And he's talking, you know, he's talking, um, you know, uh, examples as well using Jezebel. She's not alive. But he's saying these, these people who are doing this, I'm considering them like Jezebel. And I'm going to deal with this thing all up in your midst. You've left the sex. Friends, can you, listen. I know churches where the pastor's got multiple women he's sleeping with. For, we, we, we can't live like that. We can't live with sexual morality in the body of Christ. We have to be pure before the Lord. You need to be married to your wife and be with your wife only. You need to be with your husband and your husband only. You can't be switching partners and doing all this. That's sin. You don't need to be sleeping around before you get married. God has put all this stuff in place. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to judge this stuff, guys. I love you. I know. I know that you've been faithful to me. I know I, I, I know. I love so much that you persevered and that you're serving in the church. I'm so grateful for that. But this one thing I have against you, you've left this sexual 
sexual morality stuff get all up in you. And as a result of it, it's killing you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy. I love you so much. I'm writing this love letter to tell you, here's what's broken in you. And we need to get that fixed. And, 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 and if you will repent, if you'll change, I will do great things in your life. That's what he does. That's what he's saying. And for, can, let me just say this to you. The Western world, the United States especially, let me just, let me just harp on this for a second. You can't see a movie without it being rated whether or not appropriate ages should look at it. We've got an entire group that put that rating system together. Did the same thing with explicit music. Did the same. Did the same we say ages. You can't drive until you're mature enough to handle this. We, and we, just even in a non-Christian environment, we've said this is right, this is wrong, this is the age at which this could be appropriate. Uh, and we don't let you drink alcohol until you get a certain I'm again, not talking Christian, I'm just talking about in the nation. How in the world have we not regulated the internet at one bit? The children can see the most vile acts of perversion known to man at the click of a button. Why is that? Why? I tell you why. Because you can't, you can't correct what you're participating in. You can't stand and say that's wrong when you're participating in it. And the reason why not one politician, not one leader in our nation will rise up and say, we should change this, we should start regulating this for children, da 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 The reason why they won't do it? Because then somebody's going to pull up their history on their computer. And we're going to see what we've been seeing all over the news these days, right? And so that's why we have this issue. Let me tell you something. This sexual perversion is permeating our nation and the nations of the world in a way that's unprecedented. And he's warning them. He's saying, listen, I am so serious about this. I'm going to deal with the ones that's generating this stuff. I'm going to put them in a better suffering. And not only that, I'm going to kill their kids. Isn't that crazy? That's harsh. You'd say, "Woo, that's harsh. That's how much he loves us. That's how, that's how much he's warning us. Listen, change get out of this and look what he says look how he says the redemptive action he says and those who have joined within with jezebel repent of her ways those of you that have been involved in this spirit this perversion and living like this and shacking around and living like this sexually and all this kind of stuff he says repent repent of that and then what he says look at this then he continues on he says and those who have not only hold to what you have until i come what he's saying is listen those of you that have not lived in perversion and lived like this that is so awesome but hold on Keep holding on until I come because I know how tempting and damaging this spirit is. Just keep holding on. He doesn't do that with any of the other ones. He doesn't qualify those who did, those who don't. He just, he, and this is the only one where he says, those who participate in sexual perversion, repent, change, get away from it. Those who you have not, keep holding on. Keep holding on. Don't let that thing get you. And then look at what promise he gives us. This is so powerful. You still with me? Say yes. Verse 26, and he says, and I will give authority over the nations to you. Do you know why we're not raising the dead, he, raising the dead, healing the sick? Because we've lost our authority. You know what we lost our authority to? Sexual perversion. That's where we're giving our authority away to. When you and I walk up rightly and holy before the Lord, we can say to the dead, rise up in Jesus' name. Come back to life. We've given our authority away because of our sexual, our sexual uh, you know, inappropriate behavior. And God is saying, I will give you back. I will give you authority to speak to nations. If you'll walk uprightly in this. The fifth church we've got to keep moving is the church of Sardis. And that's found in Revelation chapter 3. It actually goes into the third chapter, verse 4. And this is what he says he has to praise them about. And that is, uh, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Come on, y'all haven't let sin get in you. You haven't let the soil of sin get on you. They, uh, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And the rebuke that he has for them, he doesn't really have a strong rebuke for them. Excuse me. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I repent. I made that wrong. Verse 1 through 3, he's, his rebuke for them is, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Sardis, I love you. You have, you have a few people who haven't soiled their garments in, that, in this church. But let me tell you something. Everybody thinks you're alive, but really and truly, you're dead on the inside. You're dead on the inside. You, 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 you're faking it till you make it. Hallelujah. Bless God. Oh, we love you. Amen. Bless God. Hallelujah. Get back home. I don't even ever want to go back to church. I hate it. I hate life. I hate God. Hallelujah. That's exactly what they're experiencing right here. And he's saying, and look what he says to him. I love what he tells them the redemptive action is. Here you go. Ready? Hold your ears. Wake up! That's what he says. That's what he says. I warned you if you were listening. He says, wake up! Exclamation mark. He yells it. He does. That's what he does in Scripture. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what you have received and heard, and then obey it and repent. He's saying, wake up. Wake up, man. You've you gotten in a routine. And, 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 and you just... Yeah, you haven't sold your garments. That's awesome. You haven't gone and lived a wicked life, and you're going to church and so forth and so on. But let me tell you something. You're dead on the inside. You're dead. It's just routine for you. Can, can I tell you something? You know why kids grow up in a Christian home and they walk away many times? Because they saw us, they saw us doing the deal, but not knowing the God of the deal. And, and, and I've, I'm, I've been... I've been guilty of that, where, you know, I was so busy, you know, trying to be holy and not get my, soil my garments, that I died on the inside. There was no life in it. I just went to church because I was supposed to. I was trying to be good, not be bad. That's what he's warning me. He says, wake up. Wake up. You become lethargic. You, 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 you're bored with our relationship. Wake up. Wake up. Don't let this thing get you like that. Don't be so consumed with the things of this world that you that you fall asleep in our relationship and, and there's, no, there's no life there. And then, and then here's the beautiful promise that he gives in verses 5 through 6 of chapter 3. He says, and when you do, as we do, he said, I promise you, I will dress you in white. I will never blot out your name from the book of life. And I will acknowledge your name before my Father and his angels. Can you imagine that? You'll walk into heaven, he's here. He's here, everybody. He's here. Give her that. Give her that good. Give him. Give him that good clothes. I was gonna say her, but we put a dress on her. But let's put a guy. Let's put him in a cool church dress or whatever we're gonna wear. And put him in. Yeah. And he starts marching us around. Daddy, daddy, you gotta meet. You gotta meet Adam. This is my boy right here. What's up, Adam? Man, I'm so proud of this guy. And he's gonna walk us around, being proud of us. Wow, what a promise. And then the sixth church, Church of Philadelphia. Church. We're good. Verses 7 through 13. And he says this, uh, he gives a praise, verses 8 through 9. He says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know you're tired, but you haven't denied me and you've kept my word. You have kept my command to endure patiently. I'm so proud of you. And look at the rebuke he has for them. This is where I got confused earlier. He has no rebuke for them, he has no rebuke for the church of Philadelphia. He does give a little bit of a warning, though. And, uh, and that is, he says, listen, hold on to what you have. Uh, so that no one will take your crown. So he's given a, I'm calling it a redemptive action just to put it in, in the same system as all the rest of them. But he really is telling, hey, listen, listen, I got no real rebuke for you, but hold on to what you have. Listen, don't let nobody take it from you. And, 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 and I, I think what he's really trying to tell them is this. Listen, things are going to get tough. Things are going to be hard. Call on the right name. Guys, can I just say this to you? I, thank you so much for loving Jesus. Thanks for being committed to Church on the Hill, your small group, and Miss Jamie and I as your pastors. But at the end of the day, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. 
I can't fix all your marriages. I can't be the, the greatest man ever. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm just human. And, and that's what he's really warning them. He says, listen, listen, my encouragement to you, though, thank you for not living in sin. Thank you for not living this way. I don't have a real rebuke for you, but I do have an encouragement to you, and that is, listen, listen, look to me. Call on me. Call on me. I'm your Savior. I it's my Holy Spirit that lives in the body. Call on me. I will be there for you. And friend, I would just tell you, listen, I, I, I want you to go to counselors and therapists if you need to. But at the end of the day, call on Jesus. Call on, he's the one who's going to run to you. He's the one who's going to pick you up out of the miry clay. He's the one who's going to dust you off. He's the one who's going to give you understanding and revelation. And if you look to men, they're going to fail you. If you, look, if you look to folks that are in positions of authority, they're just human, just like you and just like me. At the end of the day... Look to Jesus. And that's what he tells them to do. Isn't that good? And look at the promise that he gives them. You still with me? Say yes. He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on, uh, I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. I will also write on him my new name. Man, you're going to get tatted up. That what he's writing all over you. <laughs> Come on. You know what you do as a kid. You wrote on your stuff. Your name's all over your little favorite, little, you know, toy. Your name's all over. Why? Because it's your favorite. I'm going to write my name all over mine. You can't play that. My car. Especially you girls. Oh, my dear God. Adeline has put her name, written stuff on all her dolls. It's amazing. Why? Because it's precious to her, and that's what he's saying here. And then the last church, church number seven, Laodicea in verses 14 through 22. We see it talking about that. And look at the praise that he has for the church of Laodicea. None. He's got no praise for him. He goes straight into the rebuke in verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. A lot of preachers preach this passage. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Pretty strong with this church. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. He said, because you're not on fire for me and because you don't, hate God, you're this lukewarm thing in between. He says, you're like throw up in my mouth. And a lot of preachers will preach this passage and they'll just point out this one out of all the churches and say, that's us right now. And uh, I don't think that's us. I think that some of us all could apply, you know, we can learn from this and say, oh Lord, don't let me ever become carnal. Don't let me ever play games with God. Go to church just so I can get a little fix and go back into my life of sin and and it's a game for me. I, I don't think there's a person in this room that wants to play a game. I don't think, I think what happens over time, we just become so addicted to sin that the moment we get in hardship, we go back to smoking dope. I I think we really do love God. I think what happens is the moment, you know, we get out of here and we're not around the Christians and we're at work a full day and some of the people you have to work with, you better believe you're trying to get drunk by the end of the afternoon. Yeah, I understand it. But Frank, can I tell you something? That is lukewarm. That's what he's talking about. And he need to make a decision all the way for him or none of the way for him. That's what he's really talking about. And that's the real warning. And what has happened is the reason why they're like that is because they lost their spiritual vision. That's really the result of it. When you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And so you don't know where you're trying to get to. So that's what this whole thing is in place. Listen, I've got to, I'm waiting for you. There's, a, there's something proud. The, the most glorious thing you could ever have is waiting for you. So listen, come out of that. Don't be lukewarm. He's not, he's not hating you because you're lukewarm. In fact, he loves you so much. He's writing these love letters and he's saying, listen, I don't have anything to praise you about. I wanted to. But you're, but you're like throw up in my mouth because you can't figure out if you want to serve me or don't want to serve me. And because of that indecisiveness, it's like, 
it's like nasty in my throat. And so I'm just throwing you up. As a result of that, I wish you'd make a decision because I want to love you with everything. I want you to give me full access to you. But since you're back and forth, back and forth, I can't get my, my hands around you. I can't love you the way I want to love you. Did you ever date somebody who couldn't figure out if they wanted to date you or your best friend? You, did you remember that moment in high school or junior high or wherever it was, last week, whatever it was for you? <laughs> you? Do you know how angry that made you? Jesus like, ah, I want to be your best friend. I want to be the love of your life. I want you to be the love of my life. And that's what he's doing. He's not, he's not so mad like I want to destroy you or anything. And look at his redemptive action. He says this. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful uh, nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Listen, let me, let me tell you what he's really doing. He's saying, listen, you have bought into the lie that you can do this all in your own strength, that if you have a nice car and a nice house, that life will be good. If you go to church and you get all that, he said, but as a result of you're chasing after all these worldly things, he says, you, you can't figure out if you're hot or cold, you're lukewarm, you're back and forth. He says, let me tell you how to fix it. Go back to what really matters. Friend, it don't matter how big your house is. It matters whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Friend, it doesn't matter if you got you know if you got big cars and fancy jobs. If you can't keep your marriage together because Jesus is in the center of it. Friend, I'm gonna tell you right now. It don't matter how much money you make and how many degrees you got. When that cancer comes knocking at the door and you're dying on that deathbed and you look at God and say, Why did you let this happen to me? And He looks down at you and says, Listen, you couldn't figure it out if you wanted to be for me or against me. And I don't know why you're mad at me because you've been lukewarm this whole process. And He says. Let me tell you how to fix it, guys. Come buy from me what really matters. Let me tell you what's precious. Come have a relationship with me. Come buy gold that's from heaven. He's not talking about physical gold. He's talking about the value system of heaven. Come have a relationship with me. Let's worship together. Let's interact together. You'll have, you'll have such freedom and deliverance in your life. And then what matters will matter. And what doesn't matter won't matter. That's what he's talking about. You know how I can tell what you love? Because what you love you get excited about. Tell me. Some of you get uncomfortable when I kiss Jamie and say, you the sexiest woman on the planet up here. And I say, like, he shouldn't do that on the stage. Friend, let me tell you something. You wear your little lover's shirts everywhere you go. You got your little Dallas Cowboys. You got their numbers on your chest. I'm not walking around with sexy mama Jamie on my shirt. But I love that one. I love Jesus. I love him. He is the love of my life. I sold out everything. I gave up business. I gave up money. I gave up prestige. I'm just loving Jesus, friend. And that's what I want for you as well. And that's what he's saying. Come buy what's valuable. Come get what's really valuable. The rest of it won't matter. It'll take care of itself. Isn't that good? And look at the, look at the promise he gives. And he says, verse 21, he says, and I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I have overcome and sat down with the Father on His throne. You'll get to sit with me as a reigning, ruling king right there beside me, baby. Come on, high five. We did it. We made it. You came out of that carnality. You came out of that lukewarmness and you served me with all of your heart. And oh, even though you sinned, you repented and you didn't live in lukewarmness. That's what He's asking to be able to renew in mind in your life. Let's review real quickly and then we'll close out. Here's how we can prepare based on these seven churches. Church at Ephesus, you and I need to return to our first love. Church at Smyrna, we need to remain faithful. Faithful in hardship. I can't promise you you won't go through hardship, guys. Remain faithful in it. That's what he's challenging them. Pergamum, we need to restore the balance. Listen, it, it's not too much work. It, it, it's not sexual stuff. It's, it's not reli- excuse me, religious stuff, grace stuff. We just need to restore the balance and just live for God the best we can. And then, and then in Thyatira, we need to remove the impurities. 
Get out of all that junk. And Sardis, we need to renew our zeal. God wants us excited. Let me tell you something. When you love God, I can tell whether you really are enjoying Jesus in your relationship with him when, when we're in worship together. I can't help. I, well, listen, when cowboys are winning, it's amazing to watch you. Jumping up and down. You hadn't jumped up and down in 30 years. Dax makes a play, and you were like, I can't. Tony Romo, who? I mean, you were so excited. And, and we ought to have that same excitement, that same zeal when we come in the house of the Lord to worship our God. He has been so good to you and me. I lift my hands, not because I'm trying to showboat or I'm trying to be some charismatic person from back in the day. I lift my hands because he has saved me. I have a place with him in glory because he loves me and he allows me to be his friend. And we are best friends. Like, why would, think about the most person, popular person in history is going to be your best friend. Like, really? Like, you're going to let me be your best friend? That's cool. And, and I, I, lo- I love him for that. I can't wait to express that love. Continuing on, I think we're at number five, the church in Sardis, that we renew our zeal. Number six, the church in Philadelphia, that we would respect the word, that we'd respect it. And then the last one, Laodicea, that we would repent of our lukewarmness. And listen how he closes out his love letters to the church. This is how he closes out. He says, I stand at your heart's door and I knock. I stand at your heart's door and I knock. I want to come and eat with you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I stand. He left me outside knocking on your door. I can't force my way in. I've given you my love letters. I hope that they stir up you to action and that you'll open the door and let me have access. I stand at the door. Friend, let me tell you what the end times are all about. Let me tell you what all the end times teaching should summarize you to, you and me too. That Jesus wants a deeper relationship with us. That sin will not dominate our life and that we won't, be, we won't be embarrassed on that day. Would you stand with me all across the room? You can set your notebooks, your Bibles down. I appreciate all of these great study people. I love all the numerology. I love to study these things and I love to get around people who just love all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it boils down to this. Jesus is coming back. There will be a taking away. There are ten virgins. Five were ready and five were not. I want to be a part of the ones that were ready. There is great terror for those who will not allow Jesus to be the Lord of their life. There's a great seven love letters to us, the church. As you stand here, any of these hit your heart? Have you become lukewarm? Have you lost your first love? you're working so hard to to just go to church and do good things that you you don't even know Jesus anymore I've been there been there a number of times I was so busy in the ministry that I didn't know the God of the ministry anymore been there have you have you put up with that sexual stuff have you allowed it to linger around in your life maybe not dominate you but allowed it to linger around have you Have you allowed the confusion between grace and religion to still be there and haven't found the balance of the word? These are all love warnings from your Savior, from the one who loves you. Why don't you take a moment, why don't you just close your eyes and we've mentioned a number of these today. If any of those hit your heart and you say, oh wow, that's me. That's that's why it's in there. That's That's why the book of Revelation, those first two chapters, that's where they're there. That's what God intended that you and I would constantly look as we read through it 
over the years of our life and we come back to plumb line. We come back to, oh, wow, wow, I, I, I've, gotten, I've gotten sloppy there. Oh, wow, I, I've gotten broken there. I didn't see it until I read that again. He loves you. These are his love letters to you. As you stand there with your head bowed and your eye closed, if you find yourself needing to return to your first love, just repent right there. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. I've gotten so busy doing for you that I've lost, lost a relationship with you. If you've been going through hardship and you wanted to quit on God, that's what he's warning that other church. He said, look, just stay faithful. Stay faithful. Don't quit. You've allowed those impurities, that sexual immorality to dominate your life. You've lost your zeal. You used to be so passionate for the Lord. Now it's just a job to you. It's just a mundane relationship. There's no joy in it. He says, wake up, wake up, wake up. Or maybe you can't figure out if you're hot or cold, you're lukewarm. He calls you to repent. Draw nigh to Him. With your head bowed and your eye closed, take the next 60 seconds and just interact with your God. Father, I pray right now for every man and woman in this church. Lord, every man and woman watching by way of video or listening by way of audio. Lord God, I pray right now in Jesus' name. For the name that's above every name. They would understand the book of Revelation starts with your love for us. Your desire for us, the church. The relationship, Lord God. I'll be so busy doing for you that we stop knowing you. God, I just pray right now that every man and woman in this room, they would take advantage repentance that whatever old religion that they were taught that they have to do these things to get your love that 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 would just be broken off and right where they stand they just repent under their breath God I repent I'm sorry I've become lukewarm I repent I've lost my zeal Lord I repent I've quit on you because of what I've been through but I just pray right now Lord God and then Lord I pray that they would hear they'd hear the promise you're going to feed them manna you're going to write you're going to you're going to tat them all up. You're going to write your name all over them. Or that you're going to let them sit beside you. We're going to get to sit beside you in rulership. Oh, God. You're going to put a new, a new garment on us. Oh, Jesus. I just pray right now in Jesus' name. Every man and woman in this room, as they do business with you, will hear your voice of love and compassion back to them. As you keep your head bowed and your eye closed, today, if you're away from God, you're not a Christian. You're not confident if you die today, you'd go to heaven. Friend, I got, I got the greatest news I could ever give you. I'm telling you, more than winning a million dollars, the Savior, Jesus Christ, wants a relationship with you. It's not an accident that you're here today. It's God. It's God's plan. God worked it out. You knew you were coming to church today. You knew we were going to talk about Jesus Christ. You knew something in your heart drew you. You're not hateful and angry at God, or you wouldn't have showed up here today. But maybe you find yourself a little lost. You're not really sure where you're at. You're kind of like uh, going around in circles because the GPS gave you the wrong address. I got the right address for you today. Jesus has died on a cross to pay for every evil that you and I have done and participated in and become. You say, well, what do I do? The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today, if you're away from God, you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you've walked away from me in some season of your life, and you're ready to come home, I want to pray for you. I want to introduce you back to the Father through Jesus Christ. We're going to pray together. No one's looking around. It's just me and you and Jesus looking. If you're away from God and you want to repent, you want to come back to Jesus, you want to make Him the Lord of your life, but no one looking around, would you quickly throw up your hand and say, that's me, Pastor. It's time. God bless you, sir. God bless you. God bless you, man. Who else? Put it up, put it down. Make sure, thank you, sweetheart. Thanks for your honesty. 
Who else? Say, pray for me, Pastor. I see your hand. You can put it down. So I need Jesus. I don't want to live like this anymore. Give about three seconds. Don't hesitate. Just respond. That's God. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sweetheart. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough communicator to make you change your life. This is God doing that. Thank you, sir. Thanks for your honesty. Amen. Thank you, sweet William. Precious people. Some of, some of the most precious people you'll ever meet. Being honest, being real with themselves and with God. My three seconds are up. Was there anybody else that I didn't get to see your hand? Quickly throw it up. Put it down. Amen. Those of you that lifted your hands, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I explained it like this. If we were at a party and I grabbed you by the hand and I brought you over to my best friend, I introduced you. And y'all started a friendship right there. That's what this prayer is. It's me grabbing you by the hand and introducing you to Jesus. As you pray this prayer, mean it with all of your heart. Solidify that you love him and that you want him in your life. And then your relationship will start. There'll be good times and bad times, misunderstandings. Oh, but it'll be amazing. And in the end, you'll live with us forever in eternity. Those of you that lifted your hands, I want you to pray this prayer like this. In fact, I'd like everyone in the audience to pray it out loud with, with my friends. Say it like this. Say, Jesus. Say it out loud. Jesus, today I surrender my life, my desires, my wants. Can I say here and now, have mercy, grace on my life. Jesus, I receive your grace and your mercy. Cleanse me and I will be white as snow. Write my name in your book of life. And I declare... Jesus is my Lord. Say it again. Jesus is my Lord. Would you just keep your head bowed for a moment? Lord, I pray for every man and woman in this room who lifted their hand. I pray right now they will experience the freedom. The freedom from the old way of thinking. The old fear is just gone in Jesus. Lord, I pray right now they would sense that grace and mercy has come on. Let them feel it almost like physically. Like a, like a, like a great robe has wrapped around them on a cold winter morning. The grace of God. That they don't have to perform. They don't have to give money to the church to be saved. They don't have to, they don't have to you know, work in the kids' ministry to be saved. They are saved because they've asked and they now have received. Because you are good. Lord, we thank you for these things. We bless you in Jesus' name.